0: Hear the word of God from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, starting in chapter 2, verses 12. When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. But thank God, he had made us his captives and continued to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Like a sweet perfume, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance, rising up to God. Amen. I know that's not in there. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we are not like the many holsters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority. Knowing that God is watching us, we are be beginning to praise we, aren't, we are beginning to praise ourselves again. Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation, or who asks you to write such a letter on their behalf? Surely not. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in, in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the results of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualifications come from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not written, not written of, this is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written laws ended in death. But under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks, Ruby. So for those of you who are new to Waypoint, this is the New Living Translation, which is... uh, trying to translate the original Greek into how we would speak today. Uh, And I chose that translation because this is a unique passage. Paul is dealing with uh, addressing people that he is in direct correspondence with. And this is a letter that he wrote to them. And I've been told to imagine it like, imagine if you're listening to someone on the phone. And you only hear half the conversation. So Paul is responding to a lot of things they say. So we're having to infer and catch what they're saying. So I I like the New Living Translation because it it does translate the the Greek and to try to help us see how Paul would have heard it and how we can really just take it in. So that's the translation we're using for this morning. Um, We're in a sermon series. Oh, I'm Danny. Uh, one of the pastors here at Waypoint, sorry to inter- introduce myself, and I, I'm such a Bible nerd, I just introduced the translation before I introduced myself, and I, I really, really am thankful for the New Living Translation. Some of my seminary professors worked on it, but um, I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint. We're in a sermon series going through 2 Corinthians. We go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and our goal is to cover the entire Bible in 10 years. We're actually in year nine, so it's, it's going to happen. Uh, it's been a really... Uh, exciting journey But before we jump into the text, I want to start off by putting us into an imaginary scenario So imagine you're looking for a job Imagine money's tight and you haven't worked for a while So you're spending like eight to ten hours a day doing everything you can to get that job to get a job that meets the expectations and it's in your desired field so uh, or this could also be going to college or med school I know a lot of y'all are in that process grad school but what would you do especially for the job part what are the things you can say well what, are you, what are you what are you working on resume applications LinkedIn networking it's it's a it's a stressful process it's really hard. How many of you have been in this place? You don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but imagine it. All, many of us have been here. Stanley's been there. It's really hard. I've been in this place a few times. And it's, it's like literally that this document you're sending is representing you. And you're feeling like I'm putting everything out there. And I'm going to get rejected a lot of times. And I get excited about it. And you're, you think, this is the job. This is the one, God. Wow, this would be perfect. It's in a great location. Everything lines up. And you send it in, and you're literally just hoping, oh, I even know somebody who works there. And you call that person, and you text them, and you meet with them, and you get excited, and you get rejected. It's hard. I've been through many people who've been going through the season as a pastor, and it's, it's one of the hardest seasons someone will go through. It's just applying for a job and putting it all out there. Does this piece of paper, your resume, that document, or your LinkedIn profile represent the sum of who you are? It it doesn't, but it feels that way because that's what people see to give you this desired result of a job. Now imagine if you started the company and then they fire you. How much more worse would that feel? Like you were the one who put all, assembled everything and put it all together, and then, then they fire you, and they reject you, and they say, we don't even want to look at your resume. That's a little bit of what's going on here with Paul, and that's why he's gone back and forth with the church in Corinth. So to start off, we're going to watch a three-minute video that's going to kind of set the stage of what we've been going through, just, just so that it'll be easier for us to understand the rest of this text.
2: Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called second or two Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all, of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter has been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit and he makes clear he's forgiven them, he wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor, he earned a meager living through manual labor, he was under constant persecution and suffering, he was often homeless, and to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other, more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul, they were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders, simply because of their wealth and eloquence, is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials. And this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it. And so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying that God's spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need need any more proof than that.
1: So you see what's going on here. They want a letter of recommendation from the guy who started their church, because they met some people who seemed more impressive. All right, let's split this section that we read, that Ruby read this morning into two parts. So I'm getting this outline from Dr. Moyer Hubbard, he's a New Testament scholar, and the first section is could be subtitled, Let us Captives. And it it basically says that hardships, experience, and the service of the gospel are one means through which God spreads the knowledge of his son and work in the world. So Paul's hardship and him struggling with the Corinthian church actually advanced the gospel, made the Corinthian church stronger, and made him more resilient and more having to rely on God rather than his own strength. So God does this. God will allow us to be human and, and struggle with each other and suffer because of misunderstandings and suffer because of, we're just, uh, the church, look, look at the people around you, look at the people next to you. These are, these are good people who love Jesus, but they're also people who have personalities and, and interests and, and, and brokenness and things, hills that they're wanted, willing to die on, and you're willing to die on these other hills, and we're all just coming together to glorify God. We're not an affinity group. We're not, we didn't all join this because we all love one thing. We don't all love golf, or we don't all love college football. Although my college football fans are out here, and I see my Ohio State fans smiling right now, and my Notre Dame Ryan sad right now. But, but we're not an affinity group. We're a group of people, a family that God brings together. So there's going to be... Su- Paul talks about lots of suffering later in the letter, but one of the sufferings he talks about is he wants unity in the church but it doesn't always happen. So the first thing we see in this section is that Paul's suffering as an apostle serves to advance the gospel. So sometimes we think, why is God allowing this to happen? But a lot of times us having to trust God with the miscommunication, with the misunderstandings, with all these things will ultimately build the church and we learn and reconcile and and forgive each other and it, it makes us as a church stronger. It's interesting. Let's look at this section. It says, When I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened the door of opportunity for me. So he goes to the city and he's preaching. But then he can't find Titus. So he's all excited. He's getting to preach the gospel. But Titus isn't there because he, he, he hopes that he's reconciled with the church in Corinth. They didn't have email back then or any, any kind of systems or whatever. So the word basically spread through Word of mouth. You had to meet somebody who visited that place, and they came back and told you. So he really thought when he got to Troas, Titus would be there, and he was going to be excited about preaching in Troas, but also hearing about the good news of reconciliation in, Corinthians, in, in Corinth. But Titus wasn't there. It's interesting, he says, so I said goodbye and went to Macedonia. Like, did he, Macedonia is, is moving in the direction. Let's look at the maps. I want to show you three maps real fast. You guys know I'm a teacher at heart. So this is Paul's first and second missionary journey. And the furthest one on the left where Paul goes, that's Corinth. So it's the most Greco-Roman city he goes. Jerusalem's down at the bottom. And you see Corinth is, is just as far as he could get. You know, there's some other cities, Philippi. But it's, it's on the other side of, of the empire. Next slide. This is his third journey. You can see Troas is up there. Next slide, actually. We'll jump ahead. So you see Troas up there, and then Corinth. So Paul works his way all the way down to... because Macedonia is up there. So Paul... And you have to take that top route. You don't... Generally, you could, you could sail across the sea. So you see what's going on here. Paul wants to be reconciled, and he loves the Corinthian church. He started that church. He loves those people, and he wants to see them thrive. He wants to see the kingdom advance and the gospel advance... In a Greco-Roman city, a city with that needs the good news of Jesus. That's more important than being right. That's more important than being understood fully. To Paul, have you ever heard of a ministry called like Acts two or Micah six eight? Have you all ever heard of ministries like have Bible verses names? Anybody ever heard a ministry called like First Corinthians, Second Corinthians two ministries like? people struggling with each other and fighting, you know. Like, we name ministries after the really good stuff in the text. But most people don't think of the church as also a place where there's misunderstanding, and, and, and we need patience with each other. And so sometimes I, I, I think, like, 2 Corinthians is such a gift. Later in the letter is some of the richest theology we have in the entire Bible. But it's written in the context of Paul just pouring his heart out and struggling with God, why did you allow this to happen? Why, why, did this, why is this happening? And Paul's suffering here, like I said earlier, is, is, is due to the rejection he's experiencing. And he, he just doesn't understand, but he's continuing to trust God in the midst of understanding, conflict, and some straight-up sinful reactions that some of the people in the church had toward him. But Paul wants to continue to love God and love others for the sake of the gospel. And you can see that in his posture over and over again. So let's just remember that sometimes our suffering, this type of suffering, God can use, if we yield to God and trust him and are humble, God can use it to advance his kingdom, even though at the time it's not fun. Misunderstanding and conflict and disagreement is not fun, but God can use it and God will use it because we're broken people and he will use this. And we'll see this throughout the rest of the letter. The next thing that we see in this section is for both believers and unbelievers, Paul and his ministry partner's lives, and the ministry and their ministry are a reminder of their ultimate destiny. Look at this passage. It says, but thank God. He has made us captives and continues to lead us on in Christ's triumphal procession. This is very interesting. We'll keep this up. Right before this, Paul says, so I said goodbye and went to Macedonia to find Titus. Why does Paul not tell us any other details after that? He doesn't say, and and I found him, and whatever. He just says, but thank God that he makes us captives and then uses this illustration that really only people in Corinth and and that side of the empire would even understand. People in Jerusalem would have never seen one of these Roman parades at at the grand scale that they would have seen in Corinth. It is very interesting that Paul just jumps from that, from Hey, I went on to find him, talking about looking for Titus, but he's like, but thank God he has made us his captives. And this is talking about a Roman victory parade. Paul's not condoning a Roman victory parade, he's just using an example in their everyday life. And basically, when the Romans conquered a city, they would get their leading general who conquered the city, would march through the city, and All the people that they conquered, like the king and and the the royal family, would be kind of chained up as captives behind them to show that they have conquered, to show all the people around Rome's victory. And Paul wants the Corinthians to think of it as they've been captured like this. They're captives to God and his kingdom. And that's a good thing. Because the kingdom that they were a part of was a bad kingdom. And a good kingdom has taken them in. I believe Paul uses this illustration here because in Corinth, this would have been very prominent. Corinth was a major Roman city. They would have been very familiar with this idea. And then Paul goes on to that and he says, now he uses this to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Literally the smell of victory, like a sweet perfume. He goes on and he says, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And this example of smell going up to gods or deities would have been, would have been well known in the Greco-Roman world because they burned incense and used smells to their gods, but also to the Jewish people. Because in the law of Moses and in their customs and cultures, they also burned sacrifices and smells up to God. The first one of these we see, the first of this pattern of God's people making a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord is pleased with the aroma. It starts in Genesis 8 with Noah's sacrifice, and it continues throughout the Torah. Let's look at, at Genesis 8. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed the burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy every living creature as I have done. So I want to ask this question this morning Are you, are we a life giving fragrance? What would it look like for us to be a life-giving fragrance everywhere I go? The New Testament says we don't have to actually have to do this physically, but it says that our lives should be like this. Our lives should be like a fragrance. Our, our, the way we love each other, the way we care for each other, the way we, we care for the, our heart lines up with God's heart. So we'll, we'll talk more about this in the action points at the end. But I, I just want, when, when we see this, why, why Paul brings this up here? You know, hes he obviously wants them to begin to think that it's not just about the arguments that we're having and the, the, the speakers that they like that are good and Paul and, and all the disagreements. It's really about Christ's kingdom going out. And this kingdom, if we're bickering and fighting and, and, and not trusting each other and not reconciling, it's going to hinder this going out. But Paul focuses on the positive here. And he wants to remind us that the ministry he's given us is is like a a fragrance going out, a fragrance of victory, a fragrance of hope. Next point Paul brings up, or next point we see in this section, that Paul's intentions and ministry are pure, and he conducts himself with complete authenticity before God and others. Interesting, this next section, it says, and who is adequate for such a task as this? Or who can rise to this challenge would be another way of saying this. And this is a rhetorical question because he, what human can do this? No one. Who, who is Paul referring to here? Who's, who is adequate for this task? Jesus. Then Paul goes on and says one of the funnier words that the The uh, New Living translates as hucksters. The other translations would translate it as peddlers, which is equally as interesting. Uh, In verse 17, you see, we are not like the many hucksters or peddlers who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing God is watching us. So I'm not going to talk much about it, but but Paul's just trying to address, he's just trying to show them the sincerity of his message. And he's not, he's just like, come on, guys, I love you. Be careful. Be careful on the the gospel that you're receiving. And you'll know when the gospel's genuine, and you'll know when it's dabbling in in things that are outside of, of what Jesus taught. In another letter, Paul says, you know, there's many people doing this, and even though they're doing some things for selfish ambition, I'm just glad the gospel's being preached. Paul's glad that there are people going around preaching, but he's also kind of alerting us to, to just check ourselves and check our hearts as we spread the message. Is it a pleasing aroma or it is it something that's selfish? The next section could be called the New Covenant, the introduction to the New Covenant, and we'll continue this next week. Pastor Lawrence will go into deeper detail about what Paul says about the new covenant. But in in verses one through six of chapter three, I think you could sum it up by saying the transformative work of the spirit in the lives of the Corinthians is proof for all to see of Paul's new covenant ministry for which he has been divinely enabled. And remember when we were in Jeremiah a couple months ago and I mentioned that if you, if, you Google, if you type in J-E-R in Google, at least in mine, it always goes to which passage? The Jer- what's the famous American Jeremiah passage? Okay, that's, that's the one, right? I know the plans I have for you. That's a great passage, and it's important. Know it in its context. But the most important passage in Jeremiah is 31 and 31, that there's a new covenant coming, and that we couldn't save ourselves, and that we needed Jesus. And the new covenant is 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 presented in Jeremiah's uh, prophecy, and it's also presented in Ezekiel, which we'll study in January. And this new covenant is what Paul bases his whole ministry around. And Paul introduces the idea here. And in this this first part of this section, I would say that, or the I'm getting this from Hubbard, but Paul has no need to condemn, to commend himself, or to be recommended by everyone. The changed lives of the believer are proof of his apostleship. So he starts the church, and then they're questioning whether he's a real apostle. It's interesting. Does anybody know who invented the Macintosh computer? The guy's name. In 1984, he, he put it out to the public. Steve, Steve Jobs. Pardon? Pardon? Wozniak, no, no, the Apple. I'm talking about the Mac in 84. So Steve Jobs, and Wozniak is the engineer, Jobs is the, is the designer, but in 1984, Jobs presents the Macintosh to the world. In 1985, the board of directors of Apple fires him. He was fired from the company that he, that he co-started that he, in about 15 years earlier, 10, 12 years earlier. And then he starts another company. And in 1996, Apple's out of money. So they buy Jobs' old company back and make him CEO again. Interesting twist. Uh, Apple was almost bankrupt in 1997. Now it's the richest company in the world. Not just because of Steve Jobs, but he was a big part of that, him, him returning. But I say this because it's not a direct power. I'm not saying that Steve Jobs and Paul are even on the same wavelength or same plateau or anything. But I am saying that Paul is not carrying around a letter of recommendation intentionally because he's trying to be humble in Christ. I'm going to read about letters of recommendation in the ancient culture. Um, well, here's what Paul says, and then we're going to, I'm going to read a, a passage from a Bible scholar about what letters of recommendation look like in the Greco-Roman world. So in verse, in chapter 3, he says, Are we beginning to praise ourselves? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? So they had LinkedIn years ago. They just had it a little, little different, you know. And if you ever have somebody ask you for a letter of recommendation and you say you will, and then I'm like, dang it, I forget. I've, I, I feel like right now I have one to write for somebody, so... Yeah, it's, it's, it's still important to this day, right? And it was very important in their times because you'd be like, who is this guy? Who is this huckster? Oh, wait, he has a letter from this famous person that we trust. We'll trust him. Paul says, the only letter of recommendation you need is yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of your ministry among you. Let's look at Linda Belleville's, um, she's a New Testament scholar, how she describes letters of recommendation in the Greco-Roman world. We'll put it up on the screen. It is unthinkable in our society, to present yourself to a prospective employer without a resume in hand and a list of references at your fingertips. It was much the same in Paul's day. He lived in an equally mobile society that placed similar value on personal achievements and in introductory letters. Itinerant speakers, in particular, were expected to carry letters of reference with them as they traveled from place to place. It was often the only means by which they received hospitality and provisions for the journey ahead. And here's an actual example from a a Greco-Roman letter uh, from Asclepides to Zenon. Uh, And Philo, the barrow of this letter, has been known. I'll I'll just leave the letter up there. But you can see this this is an actual letter that that someone would walk around with, and before they spoke, they would show this and this would give them credibility, some street cred. Paul too wrote letters of recommendation, especially for his colleagues who represented his pastoral ministry in various Gentile churches he had founded. A number of his letters bear witness to this practice. The most prominent would be Romans 16, where Paul asks Phoebe to p- deliver the letter and present the letter to the church in Rome, but he has to kind of explain who she is and how she has his approval. Paul, he did not, however, personally car- carry letters of this kind, although he made use of them prior to his conversion. This gave Jewish Christian missionaries who were attempting to gain a foothold in the Corinthian community an opportunity to discredit him in the eyes of the church. Very interesting. That Paul wasn't even credited in the church that he founded. But Paul's telling him, we can go back to the passage itself. I'm trying to be humble here, y'all. I don't need a letter of recommendation. You're my letter of recommendation. In verse 2, he says that. The only letter of recommendation we need is you, yourselves. Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Notice where he talks about written on our hearts. He's going to refer to that in a second. All right, the next thing that we see, new covenant transformation is achieved not through obedience to an external written code, but through the Holy Spirit's work on the human heart. And then Paul goes on and he says, this letter is not written with pen, in ink, but with the spirit of the living God is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It's not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. And then he goes on to say, he has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. And for those of you who took our Bible study forum and we looked at four Greek words, this is actually the word deacon. The word minister here is the word deacon. It's a servant. It's a minister of this new covenant. This covenant is not of written laws. And most of your Bible translations would would say, would use the word letter again here. Uh, But the the new living chose to use, say, this is not a covenant of written laws, but of the spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but the new covenant, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. And notice I put it in red. What do red letters mean? in Bible Jesus said it This is actually a, a direct quote from John 6:36 The spirit gives life the flesh counts for nothing The words I have spoken to you they are full of the spirit and life The spirit gives life So what Paul's doing here is he's saying that I didn't need to write a letter You already have the letter. Where is that letter? And the final thing I'm going to mention this morning, God makes his servants sufficient for the tasks to which he calls them. We are ministers of the new covenant. All of us. We are ministers of the new covenant. Forget everything else I said. Put that back up. Remember this. God makes his servants sufficient for the task which he calls them. You and I are ministers of the new covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the new covenant. Literally, Jesus tells us to continually drink that cup and remember the new covenant that we have in his blood. And Paul's telling us that that he and, and Timothy and his companions are ministers of that, and we are ministers of that as this pleasing aroma. So three things I want to leave you with. Always remember and live in the reality that Jesus Christ has triumphed victorious over sin and death, and our lives are the sweet smell of knowing him. Live in this reality. This is what is true for those who follow Christ. The next one. Let your good works be your resume, including your humility that you have and you will fall short. James talks about faith without good works is dead. And Jesus says, they'll know our good works. By our good works, they'll they'll see our good deeds and, and glorify God in heaven. Life is messy. The world is sinful and broken. People hurt us. We will hurt people. Misunderstandings are inevitable. But you can always choose the path of humility, the path of trusting God, the path of of just saying, God, I'm going to choose to honor you even in the midst of of this misunderstanding. I had a friend when I lived overseas, and he was part of a small house church. Not many Christians where he was could get persecuted for his faith. And he worked at a high-level banking job. And he just chose to live out a Christian life in a non-Christian environment. got persecuted a lot. People were mad at him. Just, Just a lot of things it was hard, but he said, I'm, I'm going to trust God with it. And over the course of a couple of years, about seven or eight colleagues of his, when life hit rock bottom divorce, cancer, you know, different things they came to him and said, What's different about you? And he said, hey, Come to my church, check out Jesus. And they came. There was something about his good works and him just trusting God. Even when it was hard, that was his resume. I don't want to ask all of us to do that. And then finally, let Jesus be your letter of recommendation. You are secure in him and him alone. The new covenant says that literally it's tattooed on your heart. In Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it says that he, he's going to write the law on our hearts. On your hearts is the letter of recommendation that says you are loved by God, you are known by God, you are a child of God. You are set free and, and, and live in this new kingdom of Jesus. So let that be your letter of recommendation. Be secure in that. Be secure in, in everywhere you go and everything you do. We got a lot more to look at in 2 Corinthians. I just This was the tip of the iceberg. We're going to continue on. Even some of these topics we talk about today will will unfold more. But let's let this be our posture and let's, let's just be people of, of Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. God, this passage in, in, in 1 Corinthians is just filled with a lot of theology and a lot of Paul's expressions of, of love toward his people and, 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 and processing a lot. But ultimately God, Paul wants the Corinthian church and, and God wants us as a church to be people who live in the reality that Jesus is victorious over sin and death and our lives are the sweet smell of knowing him, that our good works can be our resume, that we can keep doing good because the letter of recommendation is written on our hearts. God, I I pray for each person here as they go throughout the weeks and the months and the years that they would just trust you and thank you that it's, it's not what we've done, but what you've done. And we thank you for sealing us with your spirit and we pray that we would just walk in your spirit and walk in, in your love and your, as new covenant people. And we trust this to you in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.